Hello, this is Thanasi Kambanis, and welcome to episode 21 of the TCF World Podcast. On this edition of the podcast, we're going to talk about the public protests in Basra, which have shaken Iraq's government to its core and perhaps mark a new phase in the country's popular politics. Protesters have been taken to the streets of Basra since the summer, complaining about pollution, poisoned water, and non-existent services. They're all the more enraged since the province produces most of the country's oil. In September, protesters briefly took over parts of the city, attacking government offices and even the Iranian consulate. Security forces killed 15 people. The sound we heard at the beginning of this podcast was one of the common chants of the protesters, which translates roughly as, Iran, get out, Basra will be free. Joining us today to talk about the protests is Tamar al-Ghobashi, who is Baghdad bureau chief for the Washington Post. He covered the protests in Basra and now joins us by phone to talk about what he reported. Tamar, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Could you set the scene by telling us just how bad things are in Basra? Um, well, I mean, it's it's pretty uh, immediately noticeable when you spend a little bit of time there. Uh, the the place is sort of decrepit, um, especially when you think uh, think of the of, of Basra as you know Iraq's essentially Iraq's second city, and as you mentioned in the intro. It is a province that uh, should be uh, overflowing with with whatever wealth Iraq uh, has because of of, of its um, port uh, and also, of course, because of its oil production. But you see it immediately when you when you enter the city. There's uh, a lot of the public infrastructure is falling apart. Uh, you know, it's a city famous for its canals, and uh, a lot of these canals are brown and dirty. Others are simply overflowing with uh, garbage, uh, you know. Is there water in the canals or are they dry? Uh, for the most part, uh, there there is water in the canals, but it's just the water is unusable. Uh, I think the latest figure we have from um, both the government and an NGO that, that focuses on public health in Basra is that something like 30,000 people have been sickened uh, by the polluted water in Basra. And it's not just people drinking the, the water, it's people using it to cook, people using it to, to wash their bodies, to wash their clothes. Um, and, and, you know, this is outrageous when you think about, you know, how um, Iraq is a country that is uh, obviously overcoming so many problems, both politically, from the security perspective, uh, socially, uh, but places like Basra were untouched by the ISIS threat, for instance. In fact, they were, you know, the Basra provided... Um, so many of the young men that joined either the Iraqi regular security forces or the uh, militias that uh, participated in the fight against ISIS. And this is obviously one of the frustrations, is that they felt that they paid with blood and sacrifice for uh, northern Iraq and to secure Baghdad and were repaid with nothing except uh, pretty venal politicians and uh, incompetent administrators, which you know put them in this uh, position where they are, uh, are not even able to access clean water in their own homes. Let's hear for a minute from some of the people in Basra who were taking part in the protests. This man's complaint roughly translates as, let them see the pain in our hearts because of the fuel, which was a curse. Let them come and see the hospitals. 
small children are dying from cancer. This woman asks, are we not humans like others in other cities? Why do they have all the clean water? Basra, the rich city, is now the most miserable province in Iraq. This is an old story for the people of Basra, which was one of the longest running front lines in the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s. It bore the brunt uh, uh, of, of the uprising, well, first the war with Kuwait, uh, the U.S.-led invasion of, or liberation of Kuwait, and the uprising in 1991, uh, and then again, uh, another round of violence and privation uh, after the 2003 war. So Basra has uh, perhaps borne more of, of, of the suffering of conflict than any other part of Iraq. Uh, and as you pointed out, it's contributed way more than its fair share to the national economy through through its oil. So there's a long, a long history of, of neglect and, uh, and, and public frustration with that. What led, what finally sparked uh, uh, the demonstrations given, given such a long, a long history of neglect and, and mistreatment? I mean, as you mentioned, they certainly paid for uh, so many of the important, uh, you know, sort of note points in Iraq's recent history. Um, but I think um, what what sparked this latest round of unrest was um, the the realization that okay, ISIS is gone uh, for the most part, uh, certainly as a you know sort of uh, <laughs> mini nation state within the borders of Iraq and Syria, but. They, they, people then began to focus on their daily, um, their daily hardships, and it came in the context of a, a national election, in which you know they had uh, a, low, a low turnout of just under forty-five percent, uh, the lowest since, of course, Iraq started holding uh, democratic elections after the U.S. invasion. People started to realize that they have really been neglected, like you said, and have had ha haven't reaped any of the benefits of, of their sacrifice. Um, as one diplomat told me, um, an Iraqi diplomat, uh, you know, cities in the south like Basra that gave so much towards the effort in in uh, to fight ISIS ultimately don't care about uh, the cities in the north that were uh, liberated. Now they're looking at their own interests and they're looking around and seeing that, you know, during the hottest summer months, uh, electricity was was woeful. Uh, you know, the the again the water issue, uh, and it sort of grew uh, from these um, sort of organic protests throughout the south and uh, centered around Basra and the conditions in Basra, and then expanded as the political process stalled into this you know widespread con condemnation of the Iraqi political system and the political elites that have not served them. Uh, it, it certainly, I think, contributed greatly to the to the fall in stature of Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, who went from being sort of viewed in the West as a front runner, almost an unopposed front runner for a second term, to now being, um, you know, uh, pretty much. Uh, uh, a pariah uh, politically in Iraq. No one wants him, and Basra contributed to that. It truly exposed uh, the gamble that Abadi took in uh, prioritizing the security uh, element and the fight against ISIS over 
basic governance. And I think Abadi calculated that if he liberates Iraq, if he's the if he's the head of government at, when Iraq is liberated, it'll mask so many of the problems that he inherited from his predecessors, which are elements of you know providing. Uh, basic services to people, providing jobs, uh, fairly and equitably sharing the national wealth, uh, getting rid of the corruption that really has led to uh, so much of the neglect in the South and in other cities. Um, so it, it, it has now grown into sort of a uh, a movement, uh, a leaderless movement, ultimately, in which people are expressing their frustrations um, through the destruction of public state property, and then expressing their frustrations with the political system overall. They attacked a lot of symbols of these, uh, of, of not just state authority, but of the different militias that, that fought ISIS, right? Yes, exactly. And who were these protesters? Were these were these former fighters in the in the fight against ISIS? Were they I mean who 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 came to the streets? The way I I observed it was that during the daytime it was you had a a, a sort of a, a diverse array of protesters, women protesting together um and you know demanding uh that the government provide services. Uh middle-aged men and uh sort of the uh the the reading class um uh, marching and gathering and having sit-ins during the day, uh, also, you know, condemning the political system, demanding basic services. Um, and then once, you know, night night came, then you had a, a, a demographic of protester that resembled a lot of the demographics you and I saw all over the Middle East during the Arab Spring, young men, angry young men. And, I, you know, I hesitate to say angry, I would say frustrated young men, uh, no older than 21 and, and as young as maybe 12 or 13 years old, basically roaming the streets, finding each other and deciding, all right, let's head over to the to the headquarters of, uh, you know, one of the militias and, and torch it. And this is ultimately the, you know, it, it culminated with them getting together and very gleefully uh, raiding the uh, Iranian consulate uh, and and setting it on fire as the police sort of sat back and let it happen. Um, I spoke to the police officers on the scene and I asked them, you know, what, what, what happened? Why, why couldn't you stop this? And they said that they had were able to, you know, repel the, the protesters the night before, uh, but uh, the protesters really overwhelmed them uh, that night and uh, they couldn't really, they couldn't do anything about it uh, without causing what, what would have probably amounted to uh, a pretty bad massacre. Did you have the impression were these folks who had also fought themselves for some of these militias against ISIS? There, it's it's very possible, and yes, certainly I did see interviews on television with the families of people who died fighting ISIS, with uh, young men who returned uh, from the fight against ISIS, expressing you know their extreme frustration. Uh, but you know, the people I spoke to and the people I met were again mostly these young boys uh, and and teenagers and guys in their early twenties who were just pissed off or actually getting a kick out of uh, you know imposing their will uh, in a place where they haven't had a voice for a long time. So uh, they were they were happy with what they were doing and they were excited and they were <laughs> enthusiastic. Uh, but it, when you really kind of press them a little bit on what why they were they were doing that, they didn't have many many you know 
lucid answers. They haven't, they hadn't given it much thought. They were saying the things that we'd been hearing, you know, that life is miserable and they don't have job opportunities and the education system is crap and, uh, you know, that they're suffering from, um, you know, heat waves with no relief from air conditioning because the electricity is shit. Um, but once, you know, once these young men did their work, you'd find these uh, kind of older guys who didn't want to participate in the torching, but were pretty happy with it. And then they, they're the ones who had a little bit more of a, of a, of a well thought out, you know, uh, idea of what, what they're angry about. So they told me, you know, the militias have been terrorizing them uh, much the way uh, mafias terrorize, you know, people in, in, in uh, neighborhoods in New York in the 1930s and the 1950s and 60s. You know, they're running rackets. They're, you know, uh, extorting business owners, small business owners for protection and um, extorting them, you know, kind of uh, informally taxing them to do business in their areas. Uh, they're murdering, they're kidnapping their opponents, whether they're political opponents or, or opponent, people standing in the way of the militias getting what they want uh, in business. Uh, and they see Iran as as the major uh, force behind these militias, uh, and they see Iran as responsible for the political deadlock in Baghdad, uh, for instance. They see Iran as, and I asked them specifically why Iran and not, say, the United States. Well, you know, people in, in Basra don't... I mean, that's a great question, right? <laughs> yeah, people in Basra don't feel the impact of, of American influence in Iraq. They don't see... American soldiers on the ground. Uh, in fact, you know, some of them may see the American consulate in Basra as being a pretty, pretty uh, aggressive force for good. I mean, the consulate does famously sponsor a lot of social programs, or you know, bring young Basrawis in for training and in various things. Um, but Iran is, you know, the border is what something like ten kilometers away from points of Basra. And Iran has a, a huge footprint through the militias. They have a big footprint in terms of what gets in and out of the ports, what crosses the border. Iran is both a provider and it's, uh, according to them, uh, a menace uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. So Iran is a, is a very uh, uh, intimate um, uh, part of, 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 of life in Basra. And this was, uh, according to these people, just like a spontaneous expression of of their frustration over Iran's uh, the, sort of the inequitable relationship with Iran. Um, so yeah, again, it's uh, if the United States was had a similar footprint with troops on the ground and and outposts in in southern Iraq, uh, maybe the United States would have been the major target of of their frustrations. But in this case, it was certainly Iran, and you know it kind of blows up the the, the popular notion that. Um, just because of the uh, religious and uh, cultural uh, ties that uh, Iraq Shia enjoy with Iran, that you know Iran is sort of uh, seen as like this um, uh, uh, you know, untouchable uh, force. No, it's not true at all. People, <laughs> I think that w there was sort of a breaking of the shackles during these Basra protests, where even the religious establishment were chanted against. Surely they weren't targeted, but they people did start you know, speaking pretty openly and critically of the Marja'iyah in, in Najaf, for instance. So it's, uh, it's, it's not an Arab Spring thing. It's not something that's been sustained even. I mean, the day after the Iranian consulate was torched, uh, the police made a pretty, pretty big show of force. It was really uh, quite intelligent in the way they did it. They just brought in, you know, the, the elite SWAT units uh, known as the emergency 
response division, and they just slowly started to squeeze the city uh, and corral people into their own neighborhoods. They were imposing sort of a soft curfew. They didn't, uh, you know, just run in there with batons and start smacking people around and closing shops and telling people go, you know, go home. No, they just started closing off the major boulevards slowly. And again, like I said, start, you know, to start to um, to sort of confine people to their own neighborhoods, but uh, you know, allowed people to move pretty freely in their own neighborhoods. They weren't forcing anyone to go home. They let you know people sit outside, smoke shisha, and uh, you know, go about their business. But they did, you know, they they made sure to cut off all the major roadways and uh, any access to uh, you know important uh, public infrastructure. So after this brief spasm of public anger, they figured out a way to let it, uh, to, to basically shut it down without, uh, without a full-on confrontation with the protesters. Uh, but the impact on national politics was, uh, was unmistakable because even if the protests ended, uh, so too did Haider al-Abadi's campaign to be the, the, to stay in office as prime minister of Iraq. Do the people in Basra who, who took to the streets feel any ownership of that? Do they consider that a victory or does that seem too, too disconnected uh, from their, uh, from their tangible grievances? I would say, you know, it's hard to, for, uh, it's hard to gauge exactly. I'm sure some of the more, uh, the, the older generation of protesters will see that as a, as a victory for them and that they were able to impact national politics in, in such a dramatic way. Whereas the younger folks who, who are just looking for like immediate relief, or to, to sort of vent frustrations, um, won't pay attention to that as much. But I think Basrawis are really smart and uh, were aware that Abadi was, was already on the ropes and that, you know, his, his chances of getting reelected were, uh, uh, you know, already diminished before they, they um, you know, like uh, before they started uh, targeting state uh, symbols of state power. The protests might not have staying power, but the people who took part in them certainly take a long view on their problems. This woman is saying, we will fight corruption and injustice. We have been like this for 18 years. We are starving. Our children grew up on the streets because of the corrupt ones, because of the parliament. Is there any chance, Tamara, that uh, some kind of organized movement will emerge from this, something that could provide an alternative or a challenge to the mafia-like uh, uh, organizations that the, uh, that the sectarian political parties of Iraq have evolved into? I, I, I don't think it would happen in the short term. Um, I certainly think it would have to emanate from the central government in, in Baghdad. Uh, right now, I, I do see that, um, you know, in this government formation process, uh, the, the Shia militias and the politicians that come from the Shia militias uh, that are, you know, uh, politically aligned with Iran, who see Iran as, as their primary ally, uh, as opposed to the United States. Uh, I feel like they're pretty ascendant at the moment. And uh, I worry that uh, with that political ascendancy uh, on the ground in Basra, they're going to start um, uh, sort of reimposing themselves, especially after they were pretty much humiliated um, by having their property damaged, by having their name sort of dragged in the street. Um, so I, I think uh, there is a huge worry among uh, you know some of the 
activists and politically active uh, folks in Basra that there will be some kind of retribution. Is there any chance that on a human level, the complaints that are that the air, you know, the air poisoning uh, kids' lungs and the water poisoning people and the lack of health care, that these uh, conditions will improve for the people who live there? I think I think certainly it, it, any any uh, government that comes in next is going to have to pay attention to that. I don't think any government wants to start off uh, from a from a weak footing where they not only have to deal with Iraq's myriad of problems uh, from reconstruction to you know diversifying and rescuing the economy to balancing you know the the interests of the United States and Iran. All these things, I don't think they want to do it against the backdrop of a uh, very upset and uh, important constituency like the Shia South. So, um, but at the same time, it's Iraq, and the way Iraqi politics goes is that you know, um, people who failed are often recycled and brought back into positions of authority, and uh, there is a massive political cultural problem of. Um, uh, of, of politicians looking out for themselves and their interests, uh, whether it be their political interests or their financial interests. I mean, the fact that the current governor of Basra uh, is in contention, however much of a long shot that he is, but is in contention for uh, the prime minister post is uh, tells you all you need to know about you know the Iraqi government's um, ability to address people's problems and you know, their willingness to address people's problems. Should we assume he's an official who's largely responsible for the plight of Basra and, and now he could fail upward to, to being in charge of the whole country? Yeah, that's how I see it, sure, certainly. I mean, um, you know, he, his provincial council office and his uh, his his residents were, were both targeted with arson and people do see him obviously as like the uh, the liaison, their liaison to, to the... Um, to the central government. Uh, he comes from the uh, party of Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. Uh, they both very publicly clashed in parliament last week uh, during an emergency session to address the situation in Basra. This heated exchange between Prime Minister of Iraq, Haider al-Abadi, and the governor of Basra was broadcast on live television. And the embarrassing uh, argument was broadcast over and over, almost on a loop in the days afterwards. It's largely credited with ending Abadi's uh, hopes of continuing in office. One last question, Tamar. We've been hearing for as, as, as long as both of us have been uh, following the region, uh, the, the, the tiresome sectarian determinism whereby analysts blame everything on identity politics and what what religious sect a person is from can these events help for once and for all put to rest the simplistic narrative of shia sunni uh kurdish iraq uh since here we have shia protesters protesting against shia politicians and shia iran uh and so on and and finally making clear that it's politics and political concerns that are motivating people and not uh, uh, some simple identitarian formula. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think it's already been happening in Iraq over the last couple of years, and I think that's one of the reasons the United States was so excited about uh, Prime Minister Abadi, and I think that's one of the reasons the United States thought Abadi would make such a uh, 
a strong candidate for a second term, is that he sort of embodied this uh, move away from identity politics. He, uh, in, in prosecuting the war against ISIS, he was very careful to uh, always frame it as a national uh, struggle. Uh, and he, uh, as much as he could, encouraged people to move away from the notion that, you know, they were rescuing the Sunnis uh, simply because, you know, Sunnis happened to live in Iraq and not the fact that, you know, these Sunnis were also victims of ISIS and, uh, you know, they needed to be brought back into the national fold. I think that that message certainly resonated with a lot of the younger generation of Iraqis that I've um, spoken to, especially those who, uh, you know, again, that we, we might... Um, skew too heavily in their direction, but, you know, folks who um, speak several languages and are sort of tired of, 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 the, of the old ways. But, you know, the Iraqi uh, uh, national election did feature some of the more traditionally sectarian parties and uh, sectarian groups, uh, especially some of the uh, militia organizations, uh, trying to woo Sunni voters and bringing Sunnis uh, onto their political list, something that was really unheard of, uh, uh, running uh, Sunni candidates on, on their platform in Sunni areas. Uh, so uh, I believe it's already been happening, and I believe, like you said, it was already uh, very simplistic to, to look at Iraq uh, along those lines exclusively. Uh, but certainly this does, uh, it's yet more evidence on the ground that, that like you said, uh, the uh, the concerns that are dominating people's lives are economic, uh, they're social, and they don't necessarily skew uh, so heavily towards you know uh, tribalism or sectarianism. And the failures are failures of governance, not failures of of sect or religion. Yes, yes, absolutely. Tamar, thank you uh, so much for your time, and thanks also for your. Fantastic eyewitness reporting from Basra uh, that was uh, enabled a lot of us to follow what was happening there from afar. And uh, good luck, and we look forward to continuing to uh, read your work and follow your your tweets. Thanks so much, man. It was good to talk to you, and uh, thanks for having me. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.